0: Lord, you are so faithful. Lord, you complete every single work that you begin. And so we thank you that the work that you've begun in our hearts and our lives, that the work you've begun in Gold Avenue Church, that you will bring to completion. And we pray today as we open your word, that you would take out from it the building blocks that are needed for your work and we open our hearts we open our minds to you when we pray speak to us O lord and um, continue building building us as individuals building us as a church and working through us and we pray this in the name of jesus amen well friends our text for today is nehemiah 5 and i'd like to say a few words to call to mind pastor gina's Sermon from last week, but I'm going to do that after I read our text. So let's begin by reading Nehemiah 5 verses 1 to 13 and then I'll summarize the verses after that. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, We've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards, although we are the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews. And though our children are as good as theirs, yet we've had to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest or another translation say usury. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, As far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you're selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us? They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, What you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let us stop charging excessive interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the interest you're charging them, one percent of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and the officials take an oath to do what they promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, In this way may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this the whole assembly said, Amen. And praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. And then for six verses, Nehemiah goes on to detail the way in which he not only um, didn't take the food and the drink allotted to him, but he had 150 people at his table daily that he cared for. God's Word. Well, friends, by the time that uh, Pastor Gina finished preaching last week, I believe that all of our hearts were just singing with the goodness of God through Nehemiah's leadership and through the exiles' faith and perseverance. Under Nehemiah's courageous leadership, the exiles finally overcame their decades-old victim mentality. And so rather than continue living amidst the rubble of broken boulders and burned-out gates, Instead of remaining continually susceptible to enemy attacks, rather than agree that this is just determined to be their future, they rise up finally under Nehemiah and begin to build and to clean and to sort and to restore. They challenge the narrative they've been handed down as each one of them finds a place along the wall close to their home, and we can almost hear the humming and the whistling as hope begins to rise in their hearts with each stone that's hoisted off the ground and onto the wall. And then trouble picks up again. No sooner have they united around wall building than their enemy begins his soul crushing work of taunting. What do you think you're building? Even if a fox climbs on that, he'd break down your wall. Yet rather than cave under the weight of these word curses, the exiles call out to God for help and they keep on building. And the wall rises and the gaps close, but the enemy's hatred intensifies. The attacks turn from words to swords and the humming and the whistling of the exiles goes silent as they realize just what it might cost them to keep building these walls. Their strength is giving out, and there's still so much rubble. We can't rebuild it, they say. Their enemies amp up the death threats even more, and before one can blink, it feels like fear and hopelessness are hanging in the air again. Until Nehemiah takes bold and courageous action, changing tactics, assigning people to guard while others work, telling everyone to work with a sword on their side, and prophesying to them all about the power and the greatness of God who will deliver them. And under Nehemiah's leadership, we experience an incredible turning of the tide where despair and fear and enemies alike are held at bay as the whole community rallies together under the word of the Lord. Our God will fight for us. And we can feel the strength returning to their hearts, the joy rising up amongst them once again as they realize, we can do this together. We we are doing this as we sacrifice for each other and work together and protect each other. We can do this. At this point, they look like a picture of unity and selflessness, which is why it's so disheartening to turn the page or turn the chapter and realize that there are potentially devastating cracks in that unity. That behind the image of men and women working selflessly side by side is another story, one that eventually reaches a boiling point and comes to Nehemiah as this great outcry. There's division in the camp. And it's no small issue of whether to use this mortar or that mortar. It's a matter of some workers not having food to eat. Famine has struck the land and these weary wall builders face yet another challenge. Taunted, attacked, exhausted, and yet believing their God to provide, they plod on day after a hot day, but the rain doesn't come and the crops don't grow and the food supply dwindles. And yet, instead of leaving their position at the wall, these dedicated workers actually begin mortgaging their own fields and vineyards and homes to get the food that will enable them to keep working and stay current with their taxes. Some of them have even gone as far as selling a child into slavery to pay the bills. It's heartbreaking. And it would look heroic... These people so committed that they're mortgaging their futures to be faithful to God's work in the present. Until we realize that they're selling their assets to their fellow Israelites. As Nehemiah listens to each one after another pour out their heart, the picture becomes clear and it is ugly. It's not the case that there's actually not enough food to go around. It's that those with the food are not only not sharing with their countrymen in need, but that they're actually practicing usury, lending to their fellow Jews at exceedingly high rates of interest. Something about this famine and the possibility of not having enough has drawn these better-off ones right back into what we might term a, a scarcity mentality or an orphan mindset. It's that nobody's taking care of me, and so I need to take care of me. And I don't think there's going to be enough, so I'm not only not sharing, but I'm hoarding. I'm pulling back on my giving. I'm only giving away when I can. Sh- I'm sure that there's more coming back to me for it. I'm stingy, and I'm self-focused. And the dissension into this place of stinginess and greed and orphan thinking has the whole community in turmoil. And because of the internal division, the work on the wall is at threat of standstill. The project might not continue. The taunters and attackers and haters might overcome. Because God's people are divided against each other. Friends, nothing threatens the advance of the gospel more than Christian disunity. Our witness to the world is that through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and our repentance and faith in him, all divisions are erased. Gender and ethnicity and social status don't create division in the kingdom of God because God's children love each other wholeheartedly and sacrificially. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another, says Jesus on the night of his arrest. And only a little later that evening he prays, Father, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. According to Jesus, the gospel will be validated and vindicated by the love and unity of his body. By the way that we love each other as we work side by side. And that love, says 1 John 3, is no mere feeling. It's measured by concrete action. John writes, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has not pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. So friends, before we cast any stones at these stingy exiles, we need to turn the camera around and examine whether any of these Same tendencies live within our hearts, because nobody's going to convince me that the run-on toilet paper at the beginning of COVID-19 was perpetrated entirely by non-Christians. It's just not true. Some of you went running to the store, and so did we. Every one of us is susceptible, and we all participate at times in this orphan-thinking scarcity mentality that leads to self-first actions. It's why when our children or our grandchildren see there's not left enough dessert left for everyone to have a piece, they argue and claw to make sure they're going to get some. It's apparently why adults stampede each other to get the best Black Friday sales. No Christians in those crowds either, right? We've all heard the speech, if the oxygen masks on the plane come down, make sure to put your own on first before helping anyone else. And I say, thanks, but we don't need to be told to do that. There's something about these times of need and desperation and times of fear and survival that just seems to draw this instinct out of us almost reflectively, reflexively. When we watch our, our retirement income take a huge dip, when we lose a job or it looks like we may lose a job, when we're watching our savings dwindle, when we aren't sure what hiccups the immutable immediate future may hold. All these are times when we so easily pull back on our sharing with others who are in genuine need. We might call it wisdom and stewardship, but if we're honest, sometimes we're just closing off our hearts to the real needs of others who are experiencing the same or worse hardships as us, but with less resources. We struggle to trust the Lord enough to give generously In the face of apparent scarcity. But it's not just our finances. When the pressure comes, we pull back emotionally too. When COVID-19 first hit, many of us found ourselves hitting new heights of Facebook surfing, movie and show watching were buried in books. What's happening there? at a time when everyone else around us needs more encouragement, more care, more connection, we turn inward trying to conserve energy and please self rather than looking at the hardship straight on and saying, okay, what's needed to help keep building together? Who needs what to keep gospel ministry strong, to keep each member at their position along the wall with the sword of the Spirit in their hand? We easily turn toward ourselves and neglect to reach out and share our listening ears, our encouragement, especially our prayers for each other. We may complain of feeling disconnected but not pick up the phone ourselves to check in on others who feel similarly. We may feel discouraged but not look with intentionality for who else might we bring a word of encouragement to? We might feel really sorry for ourselves without considering lifting our voices in prayer for the needs of our sisters and brothers. We might bring words of criticism, letting others know how they haven't measured up, when what's really needed for the deeply weary is kindness, gentleness, and a well of encouragement to drink from. See, as a body of believers, Paul says that we actually belong to each other. And that not only means that each part has something to ongoingly contribute to others, to the functioning of the whole body, but it also means that we stand or fall together. That if one part is weak, The whole body is really weak. But instead of looking for the weakest part or the weakest member and trying to strengthen them, believing that that strengthens us too, it's so easy for us in these times of scarcity and hardness to look for the weakest part of ourselves and attempt to strengthen that. And this leads to division, precisely because it leads to negligence of others. And if there's division in the body, if we're not sharing with each other what we ought to, from finances to spiritual gifts to much-needed encouragement and prayers, the gospel really doesn't go forward. Love and unity, made concrete by practical action and radical generosity, is our witness to a fractured fearful world. Nehemiah perceives the effects of this disunity. He can see exactly what will happen if some slip away because their needs aren't being met. He can see how that will leave others vulnerable, and he detests it, and he detests the roots of it. And he calls it out with Holy Spirit-given courage and wisdom, dealing with it directly. He's angry, but notice he does not act on his anger. He ponders what he hears. There's a period of waiting and consideration, presumably looking for God's wisdom. And then he brings the nobles and the officials, the leaders of the community, together. And he publicly accuses them of usury or charging excessive interest. Now this is a hugely bold move. These leaders could very easily together be threatened by the loss of their power and publicly reject Nehemiah, throwing the whole building project under the bus. So much hangs in the balance during this Moment, but in the momentary silence of these officials, Nehemiah detects a work of the Holy Spirit, and so he presses on, calling for restitution, for them to give back what they've taken. He presses further, and as he does, revival breaks out. A sweeping conviction falls on these leaders. And to a person, they all agree, we will give it back. We will do as you say. There's humility and repentance and a giving back of what was taken and what should have been given. And then Nehemiah calls them to hold good to their word with a prophetic action, shaking out his robe and telling them, God will shake out and empty anyone who breaks their promise. And all the people, including these officials and nobles, answer, Amen. And they praise the Lord. In other words, worship breaks out as this Holy Spirit move happens to bring revival, to bring conviction, to bring Uh, reconciliation and restitution, worship breaks out. There's the gates of praise. And the text tells us they did what they had promised. So unity is restored and the work will go on. But interestingly, before going back to describe that work, Nehemiah shares a little bit more about just how generous he's been. He tells us he's been feeding 150 people daily without once demanding any of the food that he's entitled to as a governor. And in his brief description, we can see both that he's embodying the generosity that he's calling for from others, but also that he's foreshadowing and he's pointing to Jesus Christ, who not only calls us to the radical generosity of loving people who hate us, of giving to those in need with deep liberality, and of laying down our lives for each other, but who himself embodies and models this? While all the world is fractured and there is no good news, no walls of salvation, no gates of praise, just the rubble of sin and rebellion, Jesus models radical, selfless generosity. Jesus had no one to encourage him, no one to support him, no one staying faithful. And yet he did not pull back in stingy self-preservation, but walked forward alone, emptying himself and becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, says Paul. And he is not left there, but the Father is faithful raising him from the dead, exalting him to rule at his right hand, and giving him an inheritance that includes the whole world. You know that old phrase, you cannot outgive God. Jesus gives his entire life, his self is everything, and he receives the world as an inheritance. And friends, Jesus whom we follow and to whom we belong empowers us as we abide in him, to live out the same radical trust that leads to generosity of all kinds. No longer orphans. We do not worry about apparent scarcity. You'll notice I've used the words apparent scarcity. With King Jesus, there is no lack, as we have faith, as we abide in him. My God is able to make all grace abound or overflow to you according to his riches in Christ Jesus, says Paul. But the challenge and the encouragement for us as believers is to remember whose we are. That our God, not only as Nehemiah earlier prophesied, fights for us, but he also provides for our needs in such a way that we can live always with a view to how we can support each other. You know, a number of Gold Avenue Church members have already lost their jobs in this pandemic, and others may yet lose their jobs. The government, who can't possibly keep up this rate right of spending, may not only be unable to keep offering stimulus checks or unemployment help, but may also be unable to help with or pay for other things like social security or forms of health care. Inflation may rise, stock markets may fall, civil unrest may increase, Wars may break out. All of these things have happened often before and are distinct possibilities. But we may face both the present and an uncertain future fearlessly we may face it as a unified church family that is committed to sharing in each other's every need so that no one whom God has called slips away from the work and leaves others of us unguarded. The witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ will go forward as we walk into our church's future by refusing to participate with that fear-based orphan mentality that turns inward but rather by allowing the Holy Spirit to flow through us to one another and to our neighbors to our neighbors with love and generosity as we find creative ways to meet an environment of scarcity and hardship with words and actions gifts and encouragements which say to the world these people really love each other they 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 love each other i mean these people they're like laying down their lives for each other what is up with them and we friends will get to answer it's jesus it's jesus do you know about jesus do you know his love do you know how he's laid down his life for you and the gospel will go forward the walls will be built, the gospel will be forward. go forward, and so will the gates with them. Praise will rise to the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again as we did at the beginning that you are ever faithful. We thank you that you are faithful to help us stay at our position in the wall building. Whether you're calling us to building, whether you're calling us to supporting, whatever you're calling us to, you're faithful to help us stay at that position so that none would slip away, none would be unprotected. You are faithful, Lord, to help us be sensitive to each other's needs and to meet those needs out of your overwhelming generosity to us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do that in the weeks, the days, the months to come. We pray, Jesus, that you would be clearly manifest through our love for each other, through our care for each other, through our noticing and supplying each other's needs and covering each other so that none are vulnerable and we are one unified family in you, Jesus. Bring in you glory. We love you, Lord. We love you. We pray this all in your precious name. Amen.